Hey, it's Karen. Welcome to Rational in Portland, where we say everything that you can't say in Portland. Today, I'm so excited. We have Shariah Mayfield. Shariah is an employment attorney in the city of Portland, and she is running for Multnomah County Chair. There she is, Shariah Mayfield. Hi, everyone. I'm a candidate for Multnomah County Chair, an employment rights attorney, and a professor of privacy rights at Willamette Law. And I am in this race because like many of you, I am disillusioned by the current leadership we have and do not believe that they are addressing our livability crises and emergencies with the critical urgency that they require. In particular, I'm focused largely on the intersection of homelessness, drug addiction, mental health, and crime. And really these issues have to be addressed in tandem and urgently if we are going to solve uh, the crises that we're facing. So unlike my opponents who are running against me, commissioners who have been in power for five or more years and delivered abysmal results, my uh, campaign is really focused on rapidly getting people off the street, uh, ending unsanctioned street camp camping in favor of more humane, compassionate alternatives, and a shelter sanitation treatment first model. I want to preface that a little bit by saying uh, that when I talk a little bit more about my plans uh, today, that I am interested in housing first. It might work for some people. It might work for people who have just slipped through the cracks, but by and large, it is extremely expensive and it's not feasible to address the mental health and drug addiction issues that we're facing here. And so I really put a huge stock on uh, getting people into treatment uh, voluntarily, ideally, but for the people who are dangerous, it would be uh, involuntary. And how do you how do you plan to do that? Well, I have a background in civil commitment. I've worked uh, in government before, and actually, while I was working at the Oregon Department of Justice, uh, doing trial and appellate work, I handled civil commitment appeals. And civil commitment, for those who don't know, is basically the process by which you get imminently dangerous people off the streets. There is a ju judicial review process for that, and a judge will determine if the person does need treatment. It is an underutilized tool to address the most dangerous people, and not just dangerous uh, in terms of violence, but there's also the danger of not being able to take care of yourself or not being aware of your surroundings. So people who wander into traffic, and I've seen it here, these are people who are just out of it and not paying attention to their surroundings due to substance abuse disorder or mental health uh, issues. These are the folks that we would be targeting to try to get into treatment. And many times the folks that need treatment the most are not the ones who are going to seek it out. And so we really have to intervene and help these people before they uh, die in a ditch. And in fact, in a recent domicile report uh, from last winter, I believe it was revealed that 49% of homeless deaths involved meth use. And so that's almost half. And if you look at the statistics from about a decade ago, it was only 3%. So we're having an exploding drug crisis that's actually causing premature death on our streets. And that is not sustainable. And that is not okay. How do you respond to people who say, it, a lot of people don't understand the civil commitment process. So maybe you can walk us through that and, and explain how you might respond to somebody who would say that that is a fundamental violation of somebody's civil rights and um, somebody who would say this is part of the reason that that involuntary 
treatment is on the ACLU's radar and frankly, probably why a lot of blue cities haven't gone this route. They don't want to tangle with the ACLU. So good question. Uh, if the if a person doesn't believe that civil commitment has any place in our society, which I would strongly disagree with, then they should be working to repeal those laws. But those are tools in the toolbox. They have been upheld. Uh, and there is a judicial review process. Now, I am very big on civil rights. I teach constitutional rights with regard to privacy and uh, have even had experiences in my past having my civil rights uh, violated. However, Given the emergency situation that we're in, the way I would envision a civil commitment process is very similar to the process we sometimes see unfolding uh, via project response. It's a project at the county level mobile crisis unit type response where uh, clinicians are dispatched to mobile crisis or to crisis situations. You can call this hotline and they will respond uh, in coordination with local law enforcement that have been trained as well to deal with these types of emergencies. They, they come together, the clinician makes the assessment as to whether the person is in distress and in a crisis and needs to be transported to the hospital, and then law enforcement would assist in the transport after the clinician makes the assessment. Once there, the, the patient will get treatment at the hospital, and from that point on, some of them will just be released, and that's the end of it, and some of those people will end up in a civil commitment uh, process, which usually will take about three days, sometimes longer, to be seen before a judge and make your case as to whether you you are uh, fit to be released back into public or whether you need to be detained longer through civil commitment and get treatment. Really, the emphasis under the law, ORS uh, Chapter 426, has, has, no, uh, has no basing to be talking about it unless they've actually looked at the laws. And those laws make very clear this is only for people who are imminently dangerous, who are at risk of harming themselves or others in, in the near future. So this is not just for everybody. These are people that are likely going to go on to hurt themselves or, or get hurt or others. And so that's what the that's what the law is in place for. Is there somebody in charge of making sure that that person is not abused or maltreated? I mean, I, I couldn't give you all the details, Karen. Um, it would be uh, up to the the in my opinion, whoever's holding the person. So in some examples, that could be the Oregon State Hospital. Um, and I think that people have expressed concerns about the Oregon State Hospital, but by and large, we don't have tons of perfect alternatives. So, hey, what about the the soccer mom smoking weed at home versus somebody who's addicted to hard drugs uh, and having severe substance abuse disorders? Well, first of all, let me just say civil commitment is not drug addiction treatment. That's not what it's geared to do. It's geared to get dangerous people off the streets and into treatment. Uh, many times it's just mental health treatment. Somebody could be having psychosis. They could be in a manic episode. They could have schizophrenia or bipolar with mania. And those are often the cases that at least I was seeing when I was working at the DOJ. Uh, in terms of drug addiction treatment, I don't think civil commitment is the primary means to do that. In fact, we need to be expanding dual diagnosis resource centers, which would focus on treating both mental health and substance abuse. And oftentimes our treatment centers are siphoning off those things separately and diverging when it comes to those treatments. But really what we need is a one-stop shop for people with drug addiction. And it needs to be easy. It needs to be simple. It needs to be free and it needs to be widespread. If we do not prioritize doing that, the root cause of our livability problems are going to just, it's just going to increase. It will get worse 
um, the drug addiction problem will spread. I was a cannabis attorney before, and I worked within a regulated industry to support uh, people in the cannabis industry, including uh, minorities, BIPOC folks, people who uh, may have otherwise had obstacles to uh, opening businesses in the cannabis industry. And I've also supported efforts to expunge people's criminal records with, with respect to drug offenses so that they can have more enterprising opportunities. But that said, the civil commitment process is really just focused on people who are very dangerous and that there has been a judicial review and determination that they are. I don't I don't understand anybody who would say people who are imminently dangerous to themselves or others should not be in some sort of uh, care. And it's either going to be a carceral system or a treatment system. And by carceral, I mean prison and jail. And by treatment, I mean either civil commitment or voluntary uh, drug addiction and mental health treatment. Those are really the only options that are feasible to deal with the, the scale of the crisis we're in right now. And then fundamentally, do you have any idea how many, I mean, there's, there's a 10 encamp, I'm looking at an encampment right now from my office window and virtually everywhere I look, there's one, there's one at the end of my residential street. Uh, There's one at the exit to my neighborhood. Um, It's in every quadrant of the city. How, how do we, I, I understand that if somebody's imminently dangerous, we can possibly get them civilly committed. But how, are you are you in favor of getting rid of these tent encampments? I, I am in favor of ending unsanctioned camping on our streets and especially on sidewalks and other passageways and getting them into alternatives. The first thing we should be doing is setting up sanctioned camp areas with access to hygiene and sanitation services. When I spoke to one street camper, she told me that she estimated about 40% of them would prefer to continue being in uh, a camping type situations with their own gear, their own equipment, their own personal items, but with access to services that they need, including laundry services. She had told me that it takes her about a month Uh, to be able to do her laundry, or she only is able to do her laundry about once a month. And that's just not, uh, that's just not humane or right that somebody has to struggle so much to get clean clothing. And so to me, it's a ladder to permanent housing. It's not a uh, get your own house first. It's get into these alternative housing, temporary housing type situations. And from there, as you uh, get rehabilitated, as you get stabilized, as you get mental health treatment, drug addiction treatment, or maybe you don't need that, then you go on to uh, to the other steps, which could be tiny homes, RV parks, uh, even motels potentially. And for some people who are just, just slipped through the cracks, you can give them a rent voucher for a month or two, get them back into housing. But for a lot of these folks, and I believe from one study, it was 52% were cited uh, as having uh, substance abuse issues. They will need more wraparound services. And we start doing that uh, in a sort of stepping stone sort of way. It's the cheapest way. Uh, I've calculated the numbers and the housing first model is we would need, uh, according to a study out of California, $837,000 to get somebody into permanent housing per person. That is just not defensible and it does not fit with our budget. We need an increase of about 80 times, based on my estimates, 80 times the funding at least uh, compared to what we have. And that's just not going to happen. You said you want to end unsanctioned camping. So currently, as I'm sure you're aware, there's a ordinance 
190478. It's an emergency ordinance that allows, uh, they call it deprioritizing, but essentially in effect allows somebody to erect a tent 10 feet away from the door of a business, 10 feet away from the door of a residence, um, 100 to 150 feet away from a school. Is, Is that something that you would abolish or would you keep that in place? I would be working to phase out all unsanctioned street camping and camping and tents that are on the streets. It's not safe. It's, it creates biohazards and it's not humane to those people to accept those sort of conditions where they're, uh, where they don't have access to to toilets or um, hygiene services and they're not getting the treatment that they need. A lot of these people, like I said, have drug addiction or mental health issues. In fact, the likely the majority and so to uh, to let them live in squalor like that is, in my opinion, not acceptable. So I would be I would be working to get those people into alternatives and and ideally in a way that really works with them and meets them at their level. So if you go to somebody on the street and say, hey, here are the options for you, you give them some options. Like 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 I said before, there are a large chunk of people who want to continue camping in some capacity. And so you say, hey, we have sanctioned camp areas for you over here. And I actually think there needs to be sanctioned camp areas, smaller ones throughout the entire county so that they don't have to travel far or be displaced from the area they're used to. You have these throughout the county and you say, hey, there's a sanctioned camp area, hey, half a mile away or wherever it is, this is where you can go. Or if you prefer, we have tiny home shelters, we have rest villages, we have RV parks, and here are the services we're going to provide, such as uh, hooking you up with uh, social security disability benefits. If you're eligible, a lot of these people have disabilities, and it it bewilders me that the feds are not picking up the tab, meaning that federal funding should be going to help ease the local tax burden that the local taxpayers are paying and and pouring into this sort of endless problem as Oregon absorbs a disproportionate amount of the nation's homeless population. So because we're doing that, the federal government uh, needs to uh, ease some of that burden. And the way we do that is get everybody who's eligible for social security disability benefits onto it, which means they have to be connected to a fixed address. Um, so the same that same ordinance one nine zero four seven eight establishes safe rest shelters, and as you know, Dan Ryan has sort of been in charge of those. And one of the biggest, most controversial issues surrounding those is where they're going to go. And his and and Sam Adams' idea was revealed when they had a conversation with managing partners of some of the largest law firms in the city, and explained to them that they were going to be able to get downtown cleaned up so that people can start spending money again by moving people in tents to these safe rest shelters that will, um, similar to your idea, that would be sprinkled throughout the city, literally everywhere in the city. Um, what ended up happening, as you know, is a, a lot of these were placed in, in neighborhoods. And um, because there are, there are no barriers, there's no sex offender screening, in fact, under this ordinance, the people who are being referred to these um, safe rest shelters are "quote unquote" high impact homeless, and the res- the uh, ordinance defines those people as engaging in conspicuous drug use, criminal activity. I mean, these are not obviously these are not people that people want in their neighborhoods. So let's say we go with your plan and we do sanctioned camping with wraparound services 
including fixed addresses so we can get these people on social security and, and sort of attempt to get them into a, th- a thriving life really. And, and hopefully some kind of permanent housing. Where are your shelters going to reside? I would focus first on public lots so that we're not having to deal with immense contracting and leasing and things like that. So I have identified, or at least somebody has sent to me, I don't know if this was leaked, uh, about 60 public lots throughout the Portland city area. And I would start with those. I mean, I'm actually in East County, uh, right on the edge of Gresham. And, you know, even here in Gresham, there there's a Kmart parking lot that's not publicly owned. But I, I look at it and I say, this place is going to waste. It's in an area that's not a neighborhood. It's uh, next to other commercial buildings it's right next to transit, it would be a perfect location for one of these types of villages. And so when I see uh, city officers or officials eyeing places that are right next to a school, for example, it just doesn't seem like common sense. And one other thing we have to be careful uh, not to do is to brush the homeless population with broad brushstrokes. There are so many different types of homeless people out there, some who are very dangerous, some who just slipped through the cracks. And so in my model, it's sort of a attack the problem from all sides and help the people in a sort of triage type manner. The ones who are the most dangerous uh, or or at risk, uh, some of those will, like I said, they need to go into civil commitment. If they have harmed other people, attacked other people, they, they need to be arrested or they need to go into commitment depending on the circumstances. But we cannot allow dangerous people to terrorize other innocent homeless people and ruin it for everyone else who's trying to get help, who's trying to improve their situation. So we, when we create these sort of safe rest villages or, or tiny home villages or RV parks, we need to be paying attention to whether they're low barrier, high barrier type uh, locations and what the standards are. So for example, for the people that don't want to be dealing with drug addiction issues, they may opt for a higher barrier type uh, safe rest village or a women only village, for example, for, for safety concerns. And I would say the the low risk uh, ones can be placed because we are we the pro- the thing is we're going we're going to have to place these whatever it is RV parks or something throughout the county. And this sort of not in my backyard attitude just won't work because it's already in your backyard. It's already spreading. It's not going to stop. And so we have to start acting urgently. And I say. Put the uh, less dangerous folks in the areas that maybe are a little bit closer to the neighborhoods. And then the ones that are more low barrier type uh, locations would be uh, closer to transit, but also closer to uh, more commercial type areas or industrial type areas, not next right next to schools and families and kids. If they're having severe drug addiction issues, um, they need to be receiving wraparound services, uh, but not just free to uh, to create uh, livability issues for the people around. And, and this is really focused on people who are dangerous and who are unpredictable, which we know that the, there are a subset of the homeless population that fall into that category. So if there's an RV park or something near a neighborhood, are you saying that it would be more of a higher barrier style situation, uh, sanctioned camping situation where people are screened for say sex offender status or, I mean, a lot of these people don't have ID. I don't know how we screen for things like that to make sure that they're not threats to the neighborhood. But um, do you have any ideas about that? Sure. Well, first things we should be helping everyone get identification for free. 
and getting a named headcount, meaning we have names of all these people. So we can actually have better tracking of the, the scale of the problem. And right now the tracking has been horrific. Well, in metrics, right? Because if you're, if you're, you want to know what works and what doesn't. So you want to keep track of these people and find out where they are in the system or if they're even still in the system, right? Absolutely. In fact, metrics is the very first step in my five-step livability plan, which is to ensure that we have metrics and progress reports to see if certain programs are working uh, and meeting the promises and goals that they have uh, told us they're going to meet. So yes, if there were an RV park that had high barrier uh, standards, meaning, okay, if you have drug addiction issues, this place is not for you. Um, If you have a violent record, this place is not for you. Yes, those could probably be closer to neighborhoods. Now, you brought up sex offenders, which is a problem. And as you probably know, there are already rules on where sex offenders can reside, such as they cannot be close to areas where children congregate like schools. And so there does need to be effort by the government to screen people who are being placed uh, in areas that may implicate the sex offender registry laws. And how do you do that? Well, you need to start doing a named headcount. That's the first thing you do. And you get people the identification that they need. And particularly for the uh, locations that are uh, potentially closer to people, you have proper security in place and you give assurances to the neighborhoods and to the, the people living nearby that, hey, we will take these livability issues seriously. We understand that this is a difficult problem with, with no perfect solutions. And I keep saying that. Do not let that perfection be the enemy of good. We look at the alternatives. Out of all the alternatives, we have to find a solution. And I understand people's concerns, but to just say, not in my backyard, well, then it's going to be on the highway. It's going to be on the sidewalk. It's going to be downtown. It's going to be everywhere. And so at some point we have to uh, be willing to work together to uh, help people get into fixed locations where they can receive services while also protecting the people nearby because there are real concerns, especially about drug use. But I guess, does it have to be, I can't you meet them halfway? I mean, it doesn't really have to be in their backyard, does it? Because if we want people to have access to services, the reality is those services are not in most neighborhoods. They're not, I mean, you're not going to find wraparound services in the heart of Laurelhurst. There's no services for these people there. The services like you said, access to transit, et cetera, there, the, aren't those generally in these kind of lots you were talking about? I mean, couldn't we, there are a lot of abandoned uh, buildings, storefronts, whatever. Couldn't the government just buy those with all this? I mean, look at this homeless tax for Pete's sake. Couldn't we theoretically buy some of these parking lots that are near services and, and, leave the people in the neighborhoods where they are. I mean, if you're sure, you know, if you're in a high density neighborhood, if you're in Chinatown, you have a lot of services around you and it makes sense to have one of these, um, one of these sanctioned encampments with wraparound services there. But the reality is a lot of neighborhoods just don't have, there are no services, right? So, I mean, it seems like maybe we can meet people halfway on that. Yeah. And I'm open. I'm not committed to one particular way. I think that's the problem here is absolutism is not going to get us the results we need. What we should be doing is listening to all the stakeholders, not just houseless advocates, not just businesses, not just neighbors, not just the homeless. We should be listening to everybody and allow them to give input 
And a particularly when concerns are brought up, those need to be assuaged. And so you're right. I don't think that the very first lots I would be looking at would be the ones close to neighborhoods. Like you mentioned, there are lots uh, throughout the county. And the, the sort of million dollar question is, why aren't we buying these? In fact, that's the hundreds of million dollars of question because it's not billions of dollars of funding. We probably have hundreds of millions of dollars of funding, which is still a lot. And when I calculated it, it's about $10,000 per homeless person per year. If somebody wants to ask me how I got to those numbers, you can ask me offline. But let's say we have $10,000 per person per year. That includes services. That includes housing. That includes rent. That includes all of it. Now, that's not... Uh, a lot of money, but it's roughly about $1,000 per month per person. And so when I look at those numbers, I think we need to start buying some of these larger lots and uh, converting them into services, wraparound services type centers. And, you know, again, the people that are homeless may not get everything that they want. And the people that are neighbors may not get everything that they want. But my goal is not to shoot for perfection. It's to shoot for good. And that's certainly much better than what we currently have, which is uh, basically no order, no uh, real uh, guidelines, no vision, no direction. Uh, nobody knows what what's actually happening or going on to solve the homeless crisis as it continues to explode and get worse and worse and worse. So the current system is not working. And the three commissioners running against me saying, hey, we want to fix this problem. We're committed to fixing this problem. Well, the track record shows that they haven't delivered us results. So we need to start thinking more creatively, boldly. And when we see common sense solutions that the vast majority of regular people are saying, hey, what about this? What about the Kmart lot that's been abandoned for, for so long? Why don't we just purchase that? I can't tell you why we're not. I don't know. I've done construction law. I worked at the federal, state, and county level doing either policy or legal work. I can't tell you why that's not a, a top priority. And it doesn't have to be that Kmart lot. There's lots of other lots as well. And lots of other. There's tons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, nobody's reported. First of all, uh, a lot of businesses have moved out of Multnomah County because of business taxes, et cetera. They're, they're, all of these places are just, a lot of it is COVID. A lot of it is people not returning to work. I mean, the amount of, you can't swing a cat without hitting an abandoned building anywhere in the city. And many of which, like you said, are next to services. And next to transit depots and just seem like logical places to, to put a lot of these people in regard to money. Are, are you going to make it a priority to like figure out what funding services you actually have? Because it seems like, a, it seems like there's no, absolutely no accountability. First of all, nobody really has a handle on how much money there is where nobody's broken down where it's coming from and no one, which is why I think the Oregonian told everybody not to vote for the homeless tax, which passed handily. Uh, no one is accountable for where the money is going. Yeah, that's a huge problem. Again, like, like my first step says in my five-step livability plan, we need the metrics, statistics, progress reports so that we can ensure accountability and transparency. Now, as a lawyer myself, who works in the law and has had extensive experience uh, in government, uh, not as a politician, but in doing other policy work, national security work, prison work, criminal defense, criminal appeals, juvenile dependency, civil commitment. As somebody who's done all these things, if it's difficult for me to look at the current governance and figure out what the heck is going on, then it's not accessible to the average person. And we really need to uh, improve 
transparency, and just a simple one-stop shop online webpage where you go to and all of this stuff is explained. Because prior to running for county chair, I could not find for the life of me exactly what the county chair even does, what they're responsible for, how do they expend the budget, do they even, what's going on here? And you have to go to 50, 50, 100 different web pages, and there's Metro, and there's ODOT, and there's city council, and there's county members, and it's and county commissioners. I still barely know what's going on, even being months into this campaign, because it's shrouded in secrecy and mystery and yes. inaccessibility to the average person. And I think that actually undermines accountability when you keep things so obfuscated from the people. They don't know exactly where the obstacles are, are being hit. And I want to come into this race and promise that as, as, as county chair, I would prioritize serving the people, not the leaders, not the politicians, not the government. My duty, my fiduciary duty is to the taxpayers and to the people that live in this region first and foremost. So I answer to them and I would answer to them. Where do we find your five-step livability plan? On my website at votemayfield.com. If you click on my priorities page, it will lay out my five-step plan and it also answers some other top frequently asked questions about hot button issues in the region, some of which the county chair would not be uh, in control of and does not have jurisdiction over. But I think it's important in the interest of transparency to state my positions on other uh, important topics. Can you tell us a bit about your background and ethnicity and how, if at all, that informs your policymaking and your beliefs, maybe your platform as a candidate? Absolutely. I am a half Egyptian, Arab American, born to a brown immigrant mother. And I grew up in post 9-11 America as a Muslim girl. And I decided to don the hijab at that time in solidarity with my black and brown sisters uh, because I look more racially ambiguous. And I did not want to uh, leave the persecuted Muslims uh, to the side after 9-11. I wanted to stand with them. And so I wore a hijab for several years and I faced severe Islamophobia. I developed um, what's called in uh, in in the black community, a double consciousness as well, meaning that I had to learn to navigate the world, not, ju not just as a, an American, but as a Muslim American with a hyphen in the middle. And by the way, it's interesting that even Toni Morrison pointed out that for a lot of minority groups, they're never just American, they're hyphenated American. And that was the first time in my life post 9-11 that I became a hyphenated American, just like African-Americans. They, they're, they're a hyphenated American, Muslim Americans, hyphenated American. And that really uh, uh, can give you a sense of two identities. And sometimes those are uh, at odds with each other. And sometimes they're, they're not at odds with each other, but having that background of being a, uh, a Muslim and growing up with a very diverse community of brown and black and Arab and uh, and white people that all went to the same mosque. We prayed shoulder to shoulder. Um, my imam is uh, from Senegal and I love him immensely. He's my hero. And so this, it was normal for me to have such a diverse community growing up. And that does inform uh, my, my experience. Uh, one other thing I do want to mention is uh, my dad was wrongfully arrested and my family was targeted by the FBI, by federal law enforcement unconstitutionally. We were surveilled and that really propelled my career into civil rights and activism to ensure that the government is held accountable. I do not like big government. I do not particularly uh, trust law enforcement, but I do think 
in a civil society, we have a social contract, there has to be some enforcement and we have to make it work. So I'm not uh, so cynical to believe that we have to burn everything down. We have to destroy the system. I know some people think that way, but I would call on them to say, let's try to work together towards solutions and, and come up with pointed uh, constructive feedback so we can uh, have more transparency, accountability in our government, which is what I'm pushing for. I want to hold government accountable. I don't want to destroy government. So are you saying that if a defund the police measure came up, that's not something that you'd necessarily be interested in? You're more interested in reform? I mean, what does defund the police even mean? This is the problem. People throw terms around and nobody knows what it means. If it means diverting some of the funds towards training or towards community policing or something like that, then sure, we can defund the police. But if it, what it means is I want to abolish law enforcement because I think it's inherently racist and systemically problematic, which, by the way, it is systemically problematic. Uh, I don't support that because uh, perfect or not. I do believe we need a government with a functioning law enforcement, whatever that looks like, whether you call it police or call it something else, we need law enforcement. And that does require uh, the arm of the government and the force of the government sometimes to uh, detain the most dangerous antisocial people in our society and get them into the justice system or into treatment if they need it, depending on who they are. But this idea of anarchy or abolishing the police completely slaps in the face of my entire life experience working in criminal defense, working in prisons, working, I represented prisoners, I've represented prisons, I have done criminal appeals, uh, defending state prosec uh, prosecutions, but I've also represented people and, and defended them against allegations of misconduct. So I've really seen both sides of it, and I would encourage other folks out there who have very absolutist views, whether it's 100%, you know, blue lives matter and, and forget everyone else and people who are saying to abolish the police to really critically think about uh, their positions and what it entails and whether they have better alternatives uh, compared to my alternative, which is we need to create grievance processes uh, within the, uh, the law enforcement system, meaning if somebody has been aggrieved or mistreated, we have set Oregon administrative rules on how they go about uh, being redressed. We don't have that right now. And even prisoners have that. That's a first step that we could be doing immediately. And so I keep telling people, do not let perfection be the enemy of good. Start with some of the reforms, see what happens, how things improve, and we adjust as we keep going. But to just burn the whole system down and say, forget it. I understand those grievances and why people are saying that, but it's not productive. What are your thoughts on funding the police and, and getting a more robust police force in, in, in the Sheriff's Department in Multnomah County? In tandem with the proper reform and accountability that I harp on, I would support that. And I think it's actually an opportunity to allow us to shift gears as we move into uh, restoring trust in the public, uh, in our law enforcement. This is an opportunity as we expand to listen to the feedback of people who have concerns, the ones who are constructively giving feedback, that is, and work with those folks. And they deserve to be heard because our police force has had problems. Uh, for example, uh, at the county level, for example, the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, to my knowledge, has not withdrawn from the Joint Terrorism Task Force, which has an extremely horrific record of being Islamophobic and racist. So these are things that we could we could implement uh, immediate reform 
Uh, and I don't care if you call it reform or defund the police, or I'm not really interested in terms like that. Just talk about the policies here. And I say create a grievance process first and foremost, so that if you ask for an incident report from the police, you're an African-American who's been mistreated and you want to get the incident report, you shouldn't have to wait months and months and months while even a prisoner gets a response within 30 days. And these are concerns I've heard from African-Americans. So what we need to be doing is focusing on the reform and accountability as we're recruiting new officers, as we're rec recruiting people from the neighborhoods uh, where we should be focusing on community policing and early intervention and gun re reduction responses. Absolutely. I mean, for, for statistics, because I, I like numbers, just think of this. In the last 30 years or so, the Portland area has uh, roughly doubled in size, but the police force is actually the same or less than it was. So we have- Yeah, a, it's less. A, yeah. yeah, we have some of the- uh, worst, or we have some of the lowest amount of police officers to uh, person ratio in the United States. And I don't think it's entirely uh, unexpected or surprising that we also have had in recent years, record homicides, gun violence, traffic deaths, uh, and, and crime in general, just skyrocketing, including thefts. So yes, we, we need to be focusing on a robust but accountable police force. And everyone who wants to be part of that conversation and who has constructive ideas, I am open to hearing them. Your dad is attorney Brandon Mayfield, and you were talking about how he was wrongfully arrested. And in fact, your civil rights were violated. What was, can you take us through what that was like for you? You were a child then, is that right? Yes. And take, take us through what that was like for you for for your family, for your home, what, weren't you? What were you? An adolescent, twelve years old or so? I was twelve, and it was a harrowing or ordeal, to put it lightly. It was the most traumatic event of my life, and to this day, I still have trauma from it. Uh, so, I just uh, was pulled out of school one day and told that my dad was arrested by the FBI. I had no idea why or what was happening. I thought it was a joke. I, I thought the first thing I told. My brother was, what, are we in some 007 movie? Uh, it just couldn't believe it. And then I found out he was accused of being some sort of mastermind behind the 2004 Madrid train bombings, which was a terrorist attack, the biggest one in Spain's modern history that killed almost 200 people and injured almost 2,000 people. And they, the, the government said it had a 100% fingerprint match linking my dad, a Muslim convert, to that site. Uh, we were surveilled for several months by, or at least a few months by the FBI, uh, based on a secret FISA court order. And people will call it a warrant, but I think that's a misnomer because it's not actually a warrant. It's a court order and it's secret. And it was done in absentia, which means the FBI went to a secret court and said a lot of bad things about my family and my dad and misconstrued facts. And it was just riddled in Islamophobia and, and, and bigotry. And we did not get to defend ourselves. And after that happened, uh, and this is almost a rubber stamp from these secret courts that many people are not even aware of. It's over 99, it's like 99.9% of these uh, uh, requested orders are granted without the, the the victim, the person being spied on, having any opportunity to push back. And so, yeah, we were surveilled. My dad was wrongfully arrested and detained at the Multnomah County Detention Center for two weeks. The FBI insisted that it was a 100% fingerprint match, which was blatantly false and in fact covered up the Spanish authorities saying that it was negativo, which means a negative match, not even inconclusive. It was negative. The FBI lied and said that 
the Spanish authorities had concluded that it was inconclusive. There were uh, a series of misstatements and false statements to try to make my dad look bad. They mentioned him going to the mosque, which is First Amendment protected activity, that he's married to an Egyptian woman, my mother. Again, these are all innocent activities that they tried to use to push this narrative that he was a threat. He was finally released. Thank God, and I say thanks to God and the Spanish authorities, after the Spanish authorities linked uh, the the match, the fingerprint match to another uh, Algerian person who was supposedly a known suspected terrorist. And interestingly, he ended up dying in a cell. Who knows if it was a suicide or if it was a, if it was something else, but my dad was released. We sued the government over the unconstitutional surveillance. And that's what led me to go into privacy rights and pushing back against mass government and especially uh, mass government surveillance. And the suit was successful. It was. So at the, well, we, we ended up settling on one portion of the case and the Patriot Act portion, which we were trying to curtail, which was expanded authority post 9-11 to literally go into to citizens' home, homes and put in bugging items to bug them, to actually spy on them physically. And this is back in the old days. So it wasn't all cell phones. It was somebody actually would break into your home and the FBI did physically break into our home multiple times. And as a child, it was, it was very terrifying because I knew that somebody was coming into our home, but I kept, I was kept uh, being told that, you know, you're paranoid, you're paranoid. And looking back, that's very dismissive and invalidating to the real concerns I had. I saw footprints on the ground and we don't wear shoes in the house. And so it was obvious people were going in there in a sloppy way and, but nothing was really being stolen, but things had been moved around. So I would notice that my computer uh, looked like a screw came out of it and weird stuff the, the blinds were cracked in an area where the height of my brother wouldn't, wouldn't line up. And so just weird stuff, the, 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 uh, the dead, the deadlock on the door was locked and we never locked that one. And so it was actually creating tensions in our family because people started saying, did you do this? Did you do it? And we're saying, no, none of us did this. The FBI was creating family strife with their sloppy work. Um, but that really, really made me gain empathy for other minorities who have been targeted uh, for decades in this country and who have been otherized. And it's just not okay when there is bigotry in the government, when there's profiling on First Amendment protected activity or on the basis of race, religion, or any other protected class. It's just not okay. And you actually wrote a book, uh, Improbable Cause, The War on Terror's Assault on the Bill of Rights with your dad, Brandon Mayfield, right? Yes, I co-authored that book. And when did you do that? What were you What were you doing in your life at the time when you wrote the book? Oh, gee, that took several years. <laughs> My dad had written it, and it was just this gigantic uh, novel. It was huge, and it had his autobiography in there. And I said, Dad, you got to cut this down. And so we took several years. And this was, I think, around the time that I was in college. So this must have been around 10 years ago that I was working on this. And, and we ended up completing it. We found a publisher. Uh, I'm really pleased with the end result. It it draws attention and puts a light on one of the most uh, harrowing uh, jaffs by I think that's how you say that by the by the federal government. And so I think it might have been back in 2015 or so that the the work was completed. You know, I've, it's a great book, and I think anybody who hasn't read it should jump on Amazon and grab it because. It not only details the painful ordeal that you and your family went through, 
but it also does a very good job of outlining a, a, a lot of the things that you said that people don't know about or understand and the larger lesson about surveillance and the Patriot Act and what all of us as Americans are subjected to and subject to potentially unbeknownst to you post 9-11 and, and how it could really, if it can happen to a prominent lawyer and his family in Portland, Oregon, it can really happen to anybody. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there's the saying that first they came from the Jew, for the Jews and nobody did anything. Then they came for the Catholics and nobody did anything or whatever the list is. And finally, somebody's going to come for you and nobody's going to be there for you. So we really do need to be working together to help uh, minority groups that have been targeted. Uh, that means BIPOC people, uh, but also people, uh, my, other minorities, Muslims, uh, people who have uh, with disabilities, for example, there are a lot of vulnerable classes of people out there that deserve protection and should not be targeted by the government. And really, we have to remind ourselves that the government is for the people, by the people, of the people. The government answers to the people. Why did you decide to run for Multnomah County chair? Tell me a little bit about that, your thought process in, in ending up with, with your candidacy. I was super fed up and I kept complaining to all my friends and sounding the alarm that we are heading in an absolutely wrong direction. Every ounce of my being, every fiber of my being says that this is not sustainable and that we deserve so much better. And they said, Shariah, you, uh, you have complained so much, do something about it. And I said, okay, I will, I'll run. And this run has been <laughs> extremely tiring, but rewarding because I realized that there are a lot of fed up people. I think they're the silent majority who have not been listened to. And you look outside and I was born in Portland and I see the place that I've called home for most of my life, uh, looking absolutely, uh, horrific, looking completely unrecognizable, uh, from what it was before. And that's not to say that it was perfect before, but it was a lot cleaner. It felt a lot safer. Uh, it looked better. Uh, there, there, we have these exploding livability crises. And sadly, I want to remind people that I am running against uh, primarily three county commissioners, and none of them have addressed these problems with the urgency we need. So I ran because I thought nobody is, I don't have trust that anybody is going to deal with these uh, in, in, in a better way than I could deal with these problems. And I want to get to the bottom of this dysfunction, of the bungled responses, of the incompetence, and start pushing us forward because I do have a track record of achievement and of moving things forward. And when I say, hey, I'm going to get this done, I do everything in my power to get it done. And I do not see that same level of zealous uh, advocacy for the people by our elected leaders right now. Was there a tipping point for you? When, when you say I was fed up, was there a tipping point where you just said, this isn't okay? Was it a specific event or, or a specific issue? Yes, actually, it was September 8th of last year. I think it was like one day before they opened up the races and I was laying in bed and I was just staring at the ceiling and I was thinking how upset I am that the place I was born in is is unrecognizable, uh, particularly with the exploding homeless crisis, the amount of people on the street, the uh, amount of crime increases, 
and the bungled leadership, I had actually written to several of my elected leaders, including some of my opponents. I'd submitted uh, uh, concerns to them, and then I got these sort of you know ca- canned responses. Uh, these, I think they were auto replies. I'm not sure. And I thought this is the problem. They're they're not actually listening and responding to the people. They may hear the words, but they're going in one ear and out the other. Because if they truly understood what the people were saying they would be spending every second of their time working to address these emergencies. And, and it, they are emergencies. The homeless crisis is not just a crisis. It's been an emergency for over six years, since 2015, in this region. And I have to remind people, this is not a new issue. It's only gotten worse over the last six years during the leadership of my opponents. So they can say all they want that they're trying to solve it or that they're working on it or that it's too hard or there's too many problems. If it's too hard for you, please Step aside and let somebody else take the lead. Let somebody else have a try at it because clearly you're in over your heads about dealing with these problems. And I'm not saying the solutions are going to be easy. And I'm, I definitely am not saying they're going to be perfect, but let somebody lead who has the energy and the boldness to keep things moving forward and not stay stagnant in this political paralysis that we've been in. We are now uh, recently, as of last year, in a federal study, we now in Oregon have the second highest un- unsheltered population in the US. And and that's that's inexcusable. Who's the first? Is it Hawaii? California. California. <laughs> yes. And we're tied actually, I believe, with Nevada for for second place, which is not something we want to be in the lead for. We also have the 50th worst uh access to drug addiction treatment, which is also not surprising. Uh, we have some of the lowest graduation rates. We have um some of the, the worst tax burden in the United States. So we're paying some of the highest taxes and getting some of the worst results. And th- that's also- a- Literally the highest taxes, highest income tax in the country, literally. So, but I mean, what what do you intend to do, if anything? I mean, is this in, in the Multnomah County Chair's purview is education within their, within their power? Because um, my concern is that uh, you know, we were on the front page of the New York Times for this. What, what a huge issue we have in Oregon is the public employees retirement system and apparently an inability to fund our educational institutions be, because of that. And according to the New York Times, we'll have to wait not just for the recipients of the tier one public employees retirement system pension to die, but their spouses to die to actually get back on track with funding. Do you, do you have any, I mean, have you learned at all through this process of, of running for chair, what, what it is that Multnomah County chair can do in regard to education? And maybe do you have any ideas about things that that you could do or would do? I feel like you're asking two questions there about PERS and about Portland schools. Is it possible that you could maybe siphon those off? Because I have strong feelings about PERS. Oh, sure. Okay, great. A big PERS case. Well, I was handling a big purse case, um, and it's probably it was it was on appeal. But um, well, why don't we start with purse? What are your feelings about that? So I, I think that people that are entitled to their purse benefits should receive their entire purse benefits, and we should be incentivized. Well, the Supreme Court has said they have to, right? So it doesn't. I mean, we can't mess with that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a case with purse where somebody has has not received what I think they duly uh, deserve, but I won't go go into my personal case, uh, my personal views on PERS are we should be incentivizing uh, public workers in the way you do that, because actually there are people leaving public work uh, in large numbers 
we have a a, a stagnating uh, increase in salary and in wages when it comes to public workers. So we need to make sure that they're getting paid what they're what they're due and what they deserve, and also ensuring that they have good benefits. Otherwise, you're not getting quality workers in the state, and that's the last thing we want. We want to incentivize the best of the best to work for the government and not uh, exclude them because of the uh, the terrible benefits or reduce benefits or slash benefits. This is not the time for that. I think there's a lot of waste going on in government and, and spending going into areas that we don't need it in. Uh, cutting PERS is not where I would focus my energy whatsoever. Um, that's that's not the solution. There are other things that I would consider cutting. Obviously, as county chair, I'm not I'm not in charge of all that. I have stronger opinions about PERS because of my professional experience as a lawyer helping workers and doing workers' rights type work, including representing uh, public workers and folks who have been uh, in my opinion, shafted and, and not received what they deserve to receive. So what, what, if anything, can the Multnomah County chair do about education in, in Multnomah County? You know, I don't think that the county chair is in a position to be spearheading, uh, education efforts, uh, PPS and the, uh, teachers unions should be heard and listened to. There are, uh, concerns from the, the unions and concerns from the school districts as to how we're going to emerge post-pandemic and into a recovery uh, of prioritizing education after about two years of kids really falling behind in their education. So as an educator myself, I am a law professor. I teach privacy law. I can weigh in. We can have task forces. We can collaborate uh, at the tri-county level and at the city level to work with the school districts and PPS and the unions to uh, to best allocate funds and give recommendations on how we should be funding and supporting teachers first and foremost, but also families who should have input in, in their children's education as well. How do you respond to families who would say, we don't have a place at the, at the bargaining table. It's really between the teachers in the district and the teachers are concerned with themselves. I mean, how do you respond to a parent who would say, you know, the teachers are, are, are clearly wrapped up in, in their, their own concerns and not the concerns of students, which is why, for instance, Oregon took so long to open up the schools and Portland and Multnomah County in particular were so late to the game with, um, mask mandates. How, how would you respond to concerned parents who are worried about teacher union overreach? And obviously it's tricky because, um, you know, teachers unions are going to be one of your powerful constituents. So I met with the teachers union and I won't talk about my personal discussions with them, but what I can say is I believe a lot of their frustration, and this comes as an educator myself, is that they were saddled with absorbing a huge burden of the pandemic that they were not trained or paid to, to deal with. And so I would not be uh, pitting the teachers unions against the families or against the students, what we have is a mismanaged bungled government response. And that was the responsibility of the government to address our pandemic crises. For example, here's a huge issue during the pandemic. Teachers were basically acting as quasi counselors and, and therapists and psychiatrists. We have a horrific uh, mental health uh, treatment access issue here in Oregon. And I have advocated that we need to expand counseling services and outreach to schools, particularly K through 12 schools, to ensure that teachers are not having to uh, do the job of just teaching, 
uh, of not just doing teaching, but also counseling and providing uh, help to people that they're not trained to do. Uh, even teaching my own law school class during the pandemic, the amount of work probably doubled or tripled at least. And my salary did not change at all. It's a very small stipend. And so there's frustration and there's anger, and that needs to be heard from the teachers who are being way overworked and underpaid for what they're doing. At the same time, we need to have families in on the conversations because those are their children and, and parents have a fundamental right to parent their children. And that means when their children are in the care of the government, we need to take every step to ensure that parents' concerns are also at the top of the list and not being uh, sidelined by, you know, by conversations just between the school districts and the teachers. I would agree with that. And I think we can find solutions that really work with everyone. How would you as Multnomah County Chair plan to address this mental health crisis? And is that something that you would have any power to do? Yes, actually, that is something that would be within the purview. Already, I'm optimistic, maybe not very optimistic. We need more uh, behavioral mental health resource centers. I think that center is only going to have a couple hundred beds, maybe 250, if I'm not mistaken. That's not enough. We need thousands and thousands of beds to give the people the treatment they need. So what I would be doing is uh, diverting funding into uh, two main areas to deal with our livability crisis. I would be diverting funding into immediate short-term solutions to get people off the streets and and into fixed addresses where they're connected to the potential for services. In my opinion, this is my goal. I would work as hard as I could to make mental health treatment and substance abuse uh, disorder treatment as easily accessible as going to fast food, as going to a McDonald's. It should be just like that. You just walk in. It's simple. You get the help you need. There's not huge wait wait times. There's not go here, go there, jump through hoops, fill out all this paperwork, go to another center. When people are in crisis, that is the hugest deterrent uh, uh, to them to get help because they see it as a huge burden and it's just too difficult. And when you're already struggling and can barely manage, we need to have empathy for these people that we shouldn't be expecting them to put in gargantuan effort just to get help. We need to provide the help and make it super easily accessible. That means using the hundreds of millions of dollars of funding that we have to start uh, building more and more of these centers immediately, not focus on only housing first. I say we focus, focus on services first and shelter first and use that money more effectively. For people who don't know, can you tell us what these mental health resource centers are? Well, they're, they're behavioral resource centers, so people who have mental health issues can go get uh, help there, get treatment, get services there. Um, I am not uh, certain if those centers uh, do dual diagnosis, meaning substance abuse treatment as well, but it's really difficult to separate uh, mental health uh, from drug addiction treatment if you have drug addiction issues or substance abuse issues. We talked about graduation rates. I mean, Portland generally... Uh, certainly Oregon is always ranked as one of the worst states in the country for public education, absolute disgrace. Portland public schools, um, there's something, there's something wrong. And I think a, a lot of people are having trouble putting their finger on, on what it is, which, which might be why we can't find a solution. Does the Multnomah County chair have any say or can can do can the Multnomah County Chair do any digging into um, why we are we we just can't seem to get these kids edu- kids educated at a level that's acceptable? 
That's a good question. I'm not exactly sure what that would entail. I mean, I would be open to the people that are focusing on education a little more in into how we can get more transparency. I mean, my I don't want to say this is uh, gospel because I I don't know for sure. But as a as an educator myself, uh, I do think we need people. We need students to be in school uh, five days a week. Teachers who are not overstrained, not burdened, not having to do uh, the work of being some sort of superhuman uh, educator, they're they're asked to do way too much for way too little pay, in my opinion. And when you pay people very little money to do a lot more than they signed up to do, the results are not going to be good. And so people will say, well, where's all the money going? Where's all the money going? I don't know. Ask the auditor. I don't know where all that money is going and how it's going to so much waste. But when you have well-funded teachers who feel satisfied and contented, I I strongly believe that you would have better results at the school level and uh, and ensure kids are still uh, showing up, that they're not delinquent, that they're uh, in the schools, that they're able to get the support services they need and expanding school programs that are after school hours so that parents can work uh, till five o'clock or 5.30 and not have to worry about what do I do with my child who gets out of school, you know, around three-ish, what do I do? So I do think the county can... Uh, put pressure on the auditor to look into this sort of stuff and also look into ways that we can ease the burden on uh, families as well as they try to navigate a post-pandemic, hopefully post-pandemic world. Well, and you brought up a good point about the auditor, because if you look at the statistics, Oregon is not a low pay state in regard to teachers by any means. So like you said, I mean, is there a way that the chair can maybe not ensure accountability, but at least call for some accountability and shine some sunlight. If, 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 if we can't shine sunlight on where the money is or where it's going, shine some sunlight on the, the issue that, that we, this is something we need to pay attention to. Can I just say that I think every teacher is probably low paid, uh, in this whole country, the, the amount of, uh, stuff that they have to deal with for their pay. If, if in my ideal world, they deserve a million dollars a year, that's not going to happen. But yes, I think that the county chair has the the role of collaborating with other offices and putting pressure on them when they're not giving people the answers they want as well. Because as the county chair, you're, you're sort of the CEO of the county and you are also advocating again for the people. And so absolutely, I would be drawing attention to that. Just as I mentioned earlier in the interview that we have some of the lowest graduation rates that needs to be highlighted. I think people forget that sometimes. And, and how do we uh, learn to do better? I say, look at what other states are doing. And the ones that are more successful start modeling that behavior. That's that's what common sense is to me. The states that are at first, second, third in the nation for graduation rates, what are they doing? Instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and pretend we're all experts on things when we're not, I don't pretend to have every single answer. And I will never pretend that I am an expert on every issue or that I can even give you all the right answers right now in the moment. But what I do know, and I think this is what's important to know, is as a leader, I would be a taskmaster. I would be going to the right folks and say, hey, I've run my own business. And one thing I know is you have to delegate responsibility and you have to go to the experts. You go to uh, construction workers when you want to build. You go to a lawyer when you have a legal issue. You go to the climate scientists when you're talking about climate chaos and how quickly we need to reduce carbon emissions. And you go to the experts in the country who are succeeding when it comes to graduation rates. And you say, hey, what are you doing? That's what we should be doing. 
If people want to help out with your campaign and support you, how do they do that and how do they find you? Great question. Uh, votemayfield.com is probably the first thing you can do. And if you go on the contact page there or the get involved button, you put your email in, say, Hey, I want to get involved. And we have a lot of volunteers right now, dozens of volunteers working on this campaign. It's extremely grassroots, uh, but it's very uh, promising that there are so many people in this campaign and it's not just, you know, I'm a, I'm a Democrat I'm on the left. I might be a little bit more uh, moderate, say, than my opponents, and I don't. I don't like putting terms on things. But in in my campaign, we have Democrats, we have progressives, we have moderates, we have independents, we have libertarians, we have Republicans. But all of us, what we have in common is we are working toward rapid common sense solutions, and we are channeling a lot of frustration. Uh, at our government into positive action, meaning we are setting our sights on realistic goals, on actual metrics that we can achieve and bringing people together to say, hey, we've had enough. Can we agree on that? We've had enough and we need to do something different. So please, if, if somebody is interested, go onto the website. We're a laid back campaign. Uh, we are fundraising. Please donate if you can. That is huge, huge, huge. I am outfunded by my competitors, but I'm narrowing that gap every day. I get people donating $10 that are saying, please, please help me. Please advocate for me. They're desperate. And I'm saying I am working as hard as I can. I am working easily 14 hours every day, sometimes on the weekends to advocate for you. And I will carry that passion and that torch uh, into the government. And I will not forget the people that are hardworking, that are tired, that are busy, that don't have time to get involved in politics, but now they're being forced to because the conditions are so bad please, please donate or, or say, Hey, I want to volunteer. We can canvas, we can phone bank. We have a lot of things to work with people on their level, on their time, but we can't do this without the support of everybody who's listening and fed up coming together and giving a new voice a chance. And how are, do you qualify for the matching funds? In other words, if somebody donates a low amount, is that, is that matched by? No, no, no. Not, at the, not at the County chair level now. Okay. So it's important. I, I think that's important for people to know, because I think a lot of people assume if they give you $20, it could be the equivalent of, of double that or even more. And so I think it's important to know, um, to do you're, you're donating the, the actual amount when people donate, they're donating the actual amount that you will receive. There will be no matching funds. That is correct, but I will stretch that dollar to its limit because we are not wasting any money on overhead costs really at all. Um, all of these volunteers, they're, they're not paid. Um, I'm certainly not paid. So we're just working as hard as we can around the clock. So that dollar that you, that you donate or the $500, because that's the limit, if you donate that, uh, that's going toward printing material, towards flyers, towards actual just material in general, we're using almost all that money to advertise and get material. So uh, it may be $1, but we we stretch it so that it's like 2 or $3 in, in terms of getting rid of any overhead costs and bureaucracy and red tape. We're just using the money as directly as possible from, from a lot of people who are fed up. And, and let me also say, even if you're not in Multnomah County, a lot of people are supporting me in Washington County and Clackamas County because the problems are spilling over and spreading to the nearby regions because we can't contain the problem here, apparently. And by we, I mean the local government, not me personally. Um, but we 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 invite people from surrounding counties to get involved, please. This is not an isolated problem. This affects all of Oregon and certainly affects the entire metro area. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want people to know about you or your candidacy? 
you know, I just want to kind of end it with this note. Uh, I want to remind people that if you do the same thing over and over again and expect different results, that's the definition of insanity. We've all heard that. And so people continue to vote for, uh, I think, mostly well-meaning politicians, but politicians who have not delivered results. And so we're at the point where we need to draw a line in the sand and say, look, our lives have gotten worse. Our conditions have gotten worse. Uh, the streets are not as beautiful. It's not as safe. I can't take my kids to the park without worrying about safety concerns. And we're tired of this and we're not going to vote for the same old, same old. And by same old, same old, I mean the three commissioners that are running against me who think they deserve a promotion. They, they're, you know, they're basically, uh, they're basically commissioners who want to be chair. And one thing I do want to say to people who don't know how the county chair race even works, because that's okay, is there are five commissioners who are basically like senators of the county, and one of them is the chair. And that current chair is retiring. And out of the four remaining commissioners, three of them now want to bump themselves up to chair. And I say, no, let's get some new leadership in. Let's get some new vision in. Let's come together. And I want to work with these people. I want to work with the other commissioners. But right now we have to we have to call a spade a spade. And you have not done a good job. You just haven't. So vote Mayfield.com. And I always, I'll say vote Mayfield this May, the elections are in May. So just remember the name Mayfield. If you want rapid action solutions, if you want clean, safe now, if you want to get over this division that we've been facing in the region and just start moving forward with solutions, this is the campaign that you should be supporting. This is the only viable non-politician campaign right now uh, from a very qualified, competent uh, lawyer with policy background and with uh a concern for vulnerable voices who's willing to do the dirty work and just get it done. Um, one other thing I want to note is that some of the commissioners, I, I have more positive feeling toward them being able to work on short-term solutions. And I'll just give a, a quick uh, name drop to Sharon Myron. And although she is my opponent and I think she's made some uh, bad decisions with regard to the homeless crisis in the past. She hasn't been bold enough. I do think in my conversations with her that she is trying to push for short-term solutions and she has been thwarted by the other commissioners. And while that is a testament to her inability to garner support, which is a problem, it does show that she at least has her intentions, I think, in the right place. So in terms of strategy, uh, getting three out of five people on the commission to push for policy is what we really need. I couldn't do it on my own. And so I'm hopeful that as chair, I could work with Sharon and possibly uh, one other commissioner, which should not be as hard to do once we have that proper leadership and start passing real solutions. Because I know there's some people that that are saying, oh, well, I, I really like Sharon. Uh, and I'll say, well, she hasn't really delivered results either or convinced even two of her co-commissioners to push for some really common sense, rapid solutions or get a named headcount, for example, of the homeless. So in terms of just strategy, I think it's better that Sharon remains a commissioner and that we ensure uh, new leadership at the chair level, uh, and namely myself. I don't think we need a lot more studies. I think the people know what needs to happen and we need to start doing it and we need to keep track of our progress. So when I say numbers, I don't mean sit around and gather more numbers forever. I mean, create the goalposts and, and then provide accountability and progress reports to see if we're actually meeting that. And what you do when you have a collaborative approach to the homeless crisis, for example, and livability crisis is you create all these different programs like, okay, we have safe rest villages, we have RV parks, we have even a little bit of housing first, that's okay. You give funds to each group and you say, let's see who will do the best. 
and whoever is performing the best in terms of the actual numbers and retention rates and people being rehabilitated with the amount of money they're given, we continue to funnel more money into the solutions that are delivering the best results. And if it happens to be one over the other, kudos to those people. I will not shut down successful solutions just because they didn't match up exactly with my plan because my plan is actually focused on everybody is is pushing for the same solutions and the ones that deliver the best results for the amount of funding we have, we support those efforts. And so yes, collaborate, work together, work with other commissioners, work with tri-county leaders, work with the private sector. This is huge. Work with developers. Yes, work with the billionaires who know how to build. How do we build uh, mass construction? How do we get uh, construction workers to get on board, general contractors? These are all questions that go into the solution and we have to be talking with the experts, DHS workers, caseworkers, clinicians, regular folks, homeless folks, business owners, all of them need to be in on this conversation if we're really going to solve the problem. We look around and we're not the only folks in the entire world dealing with homelessness or livability issues. So really looking at how things work in other places and also recognizing that maybe that program won't work perfectly here because we have a different dynamic, but certainly exploring those other options and, and importing the parts that work for us to our own systems here in place. Absolutely. So this is really interesting. I don't think a lot of people know this, but I think I had mentioned earlier that one study in California showed that it cost $837,000 to get a homeless person into permanent housing. Well, I looked up joins statistics here that's dealing with the homeless crisis and their numbers, if I'm not mistaken, I think they said they had about 116 beds and it cost this amount of money, which actually ended up being over $100,000 per bed. And I assume it's one person per bed. And therefore, uh, under their model, it's going to cost over $100,000 uh, to house a person in their model, whereas we don't have that type of funding. Based on my numbers, it's about $10,000 per person. So we need about 10 times the funding to scale the problem if there are roughly 20,000 homeless people uh, in 2022, which I suspect that's the, the closer number based on Homer Williams' estimate and based on the street camper folks I've spoke, spoken to as well, that the estimate of the homeless population is severely undercounted, which is also creating problems in how we address the crisis because uh, we, we don't have the money to deal with 20,000 people in a housing first type model. Wow. That's really scary. We don't. I don't think people are looking at the actual math. We're talking over, it would be about $2 billion to deal with that. That's almost the entire uh, county budget. It would be at least two thirds of the county budget would have to go just to homelessness if we wanted to do the housing first model based on, on those statistics. Shreya Mayfield running for Multnomah County Chair. Thank you so much for joining us, Shreya. If you want to interact with Shariah or if you have any questions for her, she's very personable. I have been following her on Twitter and looking at her tweets with her followers and other people who just interact with her. You don't have to be a follower. If you have any questions for her, I urge you to reach out to her. Her Twitter handle is Mayfield for Multnomah County, M-A-Y-F-I-E-L-D, number four. M-U-L-T-C-O, Mayfield for Malt Co., Shreya Mayfield for Multnomah County Chair. You can also interact with her. VoteMayfield.com is her website, and that will provide you with a way to ask questions and get involved with her campaign. 
contact her and her campaign and just sort of get in touch. Um, there's also a Facebook group. There's a link to the Facebook um, on Shariah Mayfield's website, votemayfield.com. Thanks again, Shariah.